Hello there, and welcome to our final podcast on transitions, grief, and loss. I'm Bethany Allen. To end our time, I wanted to spend uh, some time talking a bit about where God is in our grief and loss. As we've said, grief and loss can be disorienting, and that includes our dynamic with and to God. Grief has a funny way of confronting our faith. It both pushes and reveals to us what we believe about God's presence, about his faithfulness, about his actual goodness towards us, and what all of that tangibly means when we are hurting and in need. And so I thought it would be helpful to pastorally address three of the common spiritual themes or realities that usually surface in grief and loss. First, I want to spend some time talking about God's relationship to our grief and loss. Then, out of that, about our relationship to our grief and loss. And finally, other people's relationship to our grief and loss. Okay, so first, God's relationship to our grief and loss. If you've been around Bridgetown for any length of time, you've heard us say that the biblical narrative teaches that there is indeed a source of evil in the world. There is an enemy who has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. There's an enemy who takes people before they have lived their life in fullness, who gives cancer, who crashes airplanes, who demonizes, who preys on the lonely and the mentally unwell. And this enemy is never the God of the Bible. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we read that we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one which helps us make a bit of sense and get context around the pain we experience. I think about this particular moment when we keep hearing things like God is in control or God knows what he's doing, all of which actually places the onus on God and is, I think, at best, harmfully misleading. The point I'm wanting to emphasize here is that God is not the source of our grief and loss. Now, while he's not the source of it, He is still in the midst of it. What I mean is that while he did not cause your grief and loss, and he doesn't do that, he does want to be with you in it. Think of the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. If you have time, it would be worth going back to read it. But for now, here's a a rundown of it. In this story, we're introduced to a woman named Hagar, who was a servant of Abraham and his wife, Sarai. Sarah couldn't conceive, so she took the responsibility of having children into her own hands, and she asked Sarai to lie with her husband and become pregnant on her behalf. Bad situation all around. Now, in chapter 16, we read that after Hagar conceives, Sarai is unhappy. Makes sense. This is a bit of a real Housewives of Israel situation. So Sarai sends Hagar away in the desert with nowhere to go, And Hagar, at the end of this, loses everything. More than just her income, she loses really her entire life. And even more than that, her son's life. Now, what's beautiful in this story is that we see Yahweh respond to her right in the midst of her grief and loss. Yahweh comes near and he calls to her. He draws her to himself. And in that, amidst some of her greatest pain, gives her a promise of blessing and hope and a future. Now, there is no set plan, no clear agenda laid out, but a promise and the reality of his presence. The story of Hagar ends with her responding to Yahweh with hope and joy. And in her response, she calls him El Roy, which means the God who sees. So, 
Who is God in our pain? He is the God who sees us. He is the God who is with us. God can hold our grief, loss, and pain. And even if we feel like he is the source, he can handle and hold that anger too. In grief and loss, God is not saddened by us. God is sad alongside us. And this truth helps us to lean into his presence and to trust that he is working to bring good. Now, while it's true that he's working, it's not always easy to feel that or to experience that, especially when someone is grieving. One of the most common realities to the experience of grief and loss, particularly for apprentices of Jesus, and one that I hear on a regular basis as a pastor, is that people are no longer able to hear God's voice or experience his presence. One of our most common ways, really, of of engaging with God. So I'd like to speak to that for just a second. There is a natural result uh, of the shockwaves, if you will, that comes from an experience of a traumatic event. Think about a time when you encountered grief and loss. I would bet that it's hard to recall certain details or even what people said or didn't say during that time. Hearing and understanding seem to get severed and disconnected a bit in grieving seasons. And again, this is a part of that shockwave effect. And it's common. Psychologically speaking, from this point, it does get better. But the point I'm trying to make here is that often we panic in a space of grief and loss because of how we are hearing or not hearing or experiencing or not experiencing. But the truth is there is a very real physiological response that is impacting our normal pathways for connection, even spiritually speaking. Now, that's not true for everyone. Some experience God's voice and presence in deep ways and seasons of loss, but still others do not. Everyone experiences at some level some kind of paralysis in pain and loneliness. And while it will not look the same for everyone, the truth of the experience remains the same that nothing can separate us from God's love, no experience or lack thereof. Brother Lawrence, a monk from a few hundred years ago, once said, one need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. So whether we hear him or feel him or not, the truth to hold to is that he is with us. Just as a mother would never leave the side of her crying baby, so it is impossible for him to leave us. Next, I want to talk a bit about our relationship to our pain and loss and our relationship to our grief and loss. This is important because this is usually the place where many of us can get stuck. There is a formula or common narrative of the human condition regarding grief and loss, and it usually looks something like the experience of an unmet need or desire leads us to fear. Fear then leads us to shame and shame to pain. When something happens that we don't want to happen, or conversely, when something doesn't happen that we want to happen, it stirs within us an unmet longing, an unmet need, and that creates an ache. Now, this ache is incredibly normal. It's natural. Remember that we were built for Eden, for a world and a place of perfect shalom, perfect peace and wholeness, both within ourselves and in the world around us. But while it is part of the kingdom of God to identify and to recognize something that has broken shalom, what many of us tend to do with the experience of brokenness, like our grandparents in the garden, is to hide. Now, this hiding could look different for everyone, but my point is this. 
Often, the unmet longing or unmet need within us turns to, to fear. And fear usually goes in one of two directions. First, it says, I have to get this need met, which often moves us into a survival zone and we begin to panic because we know that we need to get this thing that hasn't been met in us met, but we don't know how to do that or we can't. And so we begin to feel like we're drowning. Next, uh, the other direction it can take is fear sets in is more of a panic mindset. This is the sensation that we have where we're saying this longing will never be met. And so we fight for surfacing, for getting our head above water and breath into our lungs. And that, over time, slowly begins to feel hopeless. And so many of us stop trying. In the midst of this panic and fear, and over time, this fear can devolve and give way to shame, which is the voice that explains to us why we're not loved, or why we are alone, or why we'll always be alone, or why this awful thing happened to us, or why no one could ever love us, or why life isn't really worth continuing, or why we probably will feel this way forever, and above all, why this is our fault. I've heard shame described as the sharpest tool in the enemy's weaponry. Shame is a one-stop shop, if you will. It explains, identifies, silences, and isolates. Shame says to us that we will never be loved, identifies the reasons why we are unlovable. It silences any hope for that to change, and it isolates us from those who call it out as a lie and love us. Brene Brown says that shame corrodes the part of us that thinks we can change. And so, when the shame has isolated us and told us lie after lie that sounds like truth after truth, this voice ferments into something of a really deep ache and pain. And pain, by its nature, demands relief. Pain turns into, for many of us, compulsive coping behaviors like pornography and masturbation, Netflix binging, Instagram, eating, not eating, running, doing drugs, alcohol, self-harm, and so on. Pain also turns into protective behaviors, like I'm fine being alone, or I don't need anyone, or guess I'll have to make do, or I can do this all by myself. One therapist I know said pain makes us feel like emotional burn victims, in which even good emotional touch hurts. But this is where our friend Jerry Sitter comes in. He's an author, and he believes that the way out of grief and loss is not by running away, but by running into it. While it's paradoxical and terrifying, I believe he's really onto something. In his book, Grace Disguised, he says the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to sunrise. And continuing on his book, he says that the soul is elastic, like a balloon. Loss can enlarge its capacity for anger and depression and despair and anguish all natural and legitimate emotions whenever we experience loss. But once enlarged, the soul is also capable of experiencing greater joy, strength, peace, and love. He goes on to even suggest that sorrow can increase our capacity for joy. Sorrow, he says, indicates that people who have suffered loss are living authentically in a world of misery. 
and it expresses the emotional anguish of people who feel pain for themselves or for others. Sorrow is noble and gracious. However painful, sorrow, he says, is good for the soul. Now, Finally, I just want to end with a quick word on other people's relationship to our grief and loss. Even as Sitter is saying certain things here, I'm reminded of the reality of how we experience other people's pain, grief, and loss, and how it's a bizarre experience. And it's an important one for us to consider, especially in light of this moment, as we're experiencing so much compounded grief. Finally, and really to end our time together, I just want to offer a quick word on other people's relationship to our grief and loss, especially in light of some of the things that we just mentioned and that Jerry Sitter mentioned as we reflected on some of his words. I can't think of a better time for us to be more aware of other people's relationship to our pain, grief, and loss, and be aware of our relationship to other people's pain, grief, and loss. And so my hope in offering this up to you is that it'll give you insight, it will give you perspective on how to interact and love those around you really well. Now, from the story of Job to the present, figuring out how to interact with those in a space of grief and loss can be really difficult. Authors Kara Tippett and Jill Buton write beautifully on this topic in their book, Just Show Up. In it, they highlight a few important realities that are helpful to acknowledge when interacting with people in grief and in loss, and this includes how people interact with you. They say that for the most part, it's important for us to remember, those of us who are grieving, that people really do want to help. They say that so many people offer to help. They say those phrases like, let me know if you need anything, but that offer is easily dismissed by so many of us because it's too broad which emphasizes our need to really explain and speak up as we can with the needs that we have. They also say that people feel pressure. Uh, They say that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, most of us do, uh, to do everything right, uh, especially for those who are hurting and uh, in our attempt to ease people's suffering. This is a common response. So one, it's helpful for us to remember that people really do want to show up and maybe they just don't know how. Uh, At the same time, it's good for us to remember not to put pressure on how we show up, but really just to be present to what's going on. Finally, they say that people often just say nothing. Ignoring someone's suffering is hurtful. Not saying anything at all is deeply wounding, and in their book, they highlight this. And nothing feels more true than that. Often, it's hard to know what to say. And this is a common response for those of us who are experiencing other people's grief as well as our own. Their point is this. No matter what, we need others to show up to our pain, and we will need to show up to theirs. And sometimes it looks like a total mess. Tippett says showing up has its own language, its own culture. Joy unspeakable, pain unbearable. These two emotions are intermingled in this joyous, beautiful, hard. Now, one more thing I want to mention here. Another common issue in the world of grief and loss is the ugly beast of comparison. We want to compare our grief and loss with others or theirs with someone else's. But Kara and Jill make a helpful point when they say we have to be careful not to put a grade on pain, like hers is greater than his. Pain is pain. And suffering is suffering. 
each human being is unique, and each human being's interaction with grief and loss is unique. They continue, What this means, though, is that each and every day of our lives is filled with opportunities to just show up in someone's life. So, how do we interact with someone else's grief and loss? Honestly, I think we try to do it like Jesus does it. We show up and we comfort where we can and how we can. If someone explicitly asks us to do something and we're able to do it, we do it. In fact, we do everything in our power to ease the suffering of those around us. This is the prophetic job of the church, to seek the good of the people around us. Now to end, my hope is that through these podcasts, you experience or have experienced greater healing and freedom and hope. And in the spirit of blessing, I want to pray the priestly blessing over you as you continue on in your journey of healing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.